So our texts today are both from the New Testament, and the first is from the Gospel according to Matthew, the fifth chapter, the 21st verse and following, one of the harder, harder, harder teachings of Jesus. And then that's followed by a letter from the Apostle Paul to, the, uh, to his friend Philemon, uh, which uh, deals with a very, very difficult issue. So let's uh, be uh, in attentive spirit as we hear these uh, teachings from Matthew and from Philemon. Jesus speaks and says, You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that if you're angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you're offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. For truly I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. And our second lesson, as I said, is from Paul's letter to Philemon, beginning at the first verse. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When I remember you in my prayers, I always thank my God because I hear of your love for all the saints and your faith toward the Lord Jesus. I pray for the sharing of your faith may become effective when you perceive all the good that we may do for Christ. I have indeed received much joy and encouragement from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, my brother. For this reason, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty Yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love, and I, Paul, do this as an old man, and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I am appealing to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I have become during my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to both you and me. I'm sending him, that is, my own heart, back to you. I wanted to keep him with me so that he might be of service to be in your place during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your good deed might be voluntary and not something forced. And perhaps this is the reason he was separated from you for a while, so that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. I say nothing about your owing me, even your own self. 
Yes, brother, let me have this benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ, confident of your obedience. I am writing to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. One thing more, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping through your prayers to be restored to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. By your grace and through your mercy, we pray, O Lord, that you will allow these words to come to point to the word just read and to the word made flesh in Jesus the Christ. For we pray this in his name. Amen. Everything changes when the phone rings in the middle of the night. Everything changes when the phone rings in the middle of the night. My Presbyterian pastor father used to tell the story about an elder in a church he served who was not really wild about my father's leadership. He saw it as his mission in life to make my father's life as miserable as he could, bucked him at every turn. Any idea my father had was a bad one as far as this man was concerned. I remember nights when dad would come home from a session meeting telling stories about one more thing that Sam, that's, the not, that's not his real name, a name I'm giving him, that Sam had done to run interference with one of dad's ideas. Finally, one night in the middle of the night, dad got a call from Sam's wife. Sam had had a heart attack, and would dad come to the hospital and pray for him? So, of course, in the middle of the night, when the call comes, you're no longer opponents, you're fellow human beings. So dad got up, got on a suit, drove to the hospital in the middle of the night because that's what human beings do, and found Sam in the intensive care unit with every two possible going in and out of him. Sam appeared unconscious, so dad stood beside his bed and prayed silently. And at one point, Sam opened his eyes and looked over at my father and then with rasped voice said, Harold, when I woke up, I thought I might be in heaven, but then I saw you. (laughs) The two men chuckled and then talked into the wee hours, and Dad said that was the beginning of a new relationship. It was not an uncommon thing growing up in a pastor's home for the phone to ring in the middle of the night. And when the phone rings in the middle of the night, everything changes because usually on the other end of the line is another human being who's in trouble, enough trouble that warrants a cry in the night. I remember another call that came in the middle of the night to my father, but I was the one who got to the phone first, and it was a member of the congregation, a lovely young mother, who had always impressed me as one of those people who had it all going for her. But on the other end of the line, Mrs. Smith, that's what I'll call her, was hysterically crying. I could barely make out what she was saying, so I ran and got my father, and minutes later, Dad put down the phone, put on his suit, and headed out the door. Later that night, he brought Mrs. Smith to our house, bearing with her the bruises and cuts and tears from her husband's beating two hours before. 
In the middle of the night, we're all just human beings that need each other. So when I became a pastor, I knew to expect such calls. In fact, I became a pastor for the purpose of such calls. So not long into my ministry, one of those calls came from a district attorney. He was calling to tell me that he had just arrested a member of my church who was being charged with a horrific crime and that the police officers were bringing him into the station and that the boy was preparing to confess to the crime. His name had been spattered across the newspapers the entire week before while he had been on the lam. Pastor, he said, I'm calling to ask you to do something that as a district attorney is not in my best interest. But the young man's not in his right mind and he's about to confess before talking to his lawyer. And while there's nothing more I want to do than to throw him behind bars, he's still a U.S. citizen and afforded certain rights. Would you be as kind as to come down and convince this young man to seek representation before he speaks to anyone? What an interesting thing this man of the law was requesting, I thought to myself. But I guess in the middle of the night, we're all just humans that need each other. So I got dressed, went down to the courthouse, and sat alone with this young man who had just ruined his life and the lives of three others, and did what the district attorney graciously asked me to do, beg the young man to exercise his right to representation, his right as a human being and as a United States citizen. In the middle of the night, we appeal to our common humanity. At no time was this impressed upon me than the night while I was sleeping and a knock came to the door. I was on a mission trip in Honduras years ago when pastoring another church, and the knock came to my hotel room door in the middle of the night. It was a member of our team who had said that help was needed. So I got on my clothes, went to the hotel lobby, and there was a young Honduran mother and her two children. She too had the marks and cuts and tears of a beating. She had come to ask us to help her escape, escape her own husband. She feared for the life of her children, not to mention her own life. So in the middle of the night, you're not an American, you're not a Honduran, you're human beings that need each other. So we scraped the mon the get together the money we had and secured her a bus ticket to another part of the continent where family awaited her. Everything changes when a call comes in the middle of the night. And I suppose the thing that changes is that when the call comes in the middle of the night, the world with all its billions and billions of people and millions and millions of groups and thousands and thousands and thousands of causes, the big old world gets boiled down to one person. One person on the other end of the line who needs another person. Sometimes the need is for a pastor, sometimes the need is for a friend, sometimes the need is for a neighbor, sometimes the need is just for anybody to listen. It's why we have crisis hotlines. The world gets boiled down to one human being needing another human being just to listen. And you know, when it's one human being needed, needing another human being, things are a lot different than what you read about in the newspaper or what you hear about on the radio or what you watch on your favorite cable news channel. 
when you read about what you read about in the newspaper or hear about on the radio or watch on your favorite cable news channel or follow on your Twitter feed, are all these comments and thoughts and words and tweets about kinds of people. There are those kinds of people and there are these kinds of people and we attach to these groups of people the labels that are most convenient and the descriptions that come easiest. We take the names, the voices, and the faces away and we replace them with our labels and our categories, these people, those people. And we do it, I suppose, just to make things easier, less complicated because there's nothing more complicated than when a call comes in the middle of the night. But that's a real human being on the other end of the line with a real name and a real problem. It's just easier when we step away a few steps and call people these kinds of people and those kinds of people when we don't have to deal with the face, the voice, the name. Because life is less black and white when you're face to face with a human being. And you know, that's really how the whole Christian story got started in the middle of the night. The call goes out to rich kings and poor shepherds that there is this unmarried homeless couple huddled up in a barn and she's just given birth to her firstborn, swallowed him in rags and laid him in a cattle trough. There was no cable argument about the poor or welfare system or illegal immigration. There was no name calling from Rome. There was no argument over whose side these folks were on. There was just this scared little displaced family. We even have their names, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. This little displaced family at the mercy of whoever might come their way. And this, the Bible says, is how God chose to meet us. This is how God chose to meet us, face to face, in the flesh, a cry in the middle of the night. And it seems that when God does this, and when Jesus pursues his ministry of one person at a time, one leper at a time, one tax collector at a time, one prostitute at a time, one sinner at a time, that what God seems to be saying is that God's measure of humanity begins and ends with one single person. One single person. Not the mass of humanity, not the category of this group or that group, not the label of this party or that party, not the pejorative name that's so easy to hang on someone we don't like or agree with, but the measure of humanity begins and ends with one human soul. One single human soul and any one person at the other end of the midnight call. The compassion and empathy that would stir within us when a real human being with a real name and a real voice and a real face is standing right in front of us or lying and swaddled in a manger before us. This is where the Christian experience begins and ends. That all our behavior, all our language begins and ends with how we regard the humanity of the one single person. It seems this was what was at stake when the Apostle Paul had standing before him a slave. Not just a slave, a runaway slave. A fugitive, a criminal. 
Onesimus was his name. He had run away from the household of Philemon, who was a member of the church in Colossae. Onesimus had run from what is now western Turkey all the way to Rome, and in the middle of the night, we can imagine, knocked on Paul's door for help. And Paul let him in and became, in effect, a co-conspirator, a slave harborer. But in the kingdom, Paul says, there is no longer slave or free, no longer male or female, no longer Jew or Gentile. No, in the middle of the night, it's just a human soul needing the mercy and compassion of another human soul. So Paul takes Onesimus, the runaway slave, fugitive, criminal, into his care. An underground railroad stop back before there was ever an underground railroad. And he nurtures this young slave in the grace of God and ultimately into a relationship with Jesus. But then eventually there comes the time when Onesimus must return to his master. Slavery was an accepted institution in the first century, and though Philemon, his master, had every legal right to wreak retribution upon his runaway slave, Paul appeals to Philemon and says that when it comes, Philemon, to our identity in Christ, it's no longer about the law. It's about the person. Welcome him, Paul says, as you would welcome me. He is no longer your slave. He is your brother. You hear what Paul is saying? He boils the whole world, the whole institution of slavery, the whole criminal code, down to one single person, to that one cry in the night, and says, this one person, before he's anything else, is our brother. So maybe we are blessed to be living in the photographic age. Maybe it's a good thing when we take up matters of social policy and foreign policy and border policy and domestic policy that in the end, these things do boil down to pictures. A crying child at the border, a dead person of color lying murdered in a shopping aisle, a troubled young adult with a loaded semi-automatic weapon, a gay young man shamed into suicide, a prisoner locked behind bars. Maybe it's a good thing we see their pictures because then maybe we see their humanity. Maybe we see what God sees, a human soul born in the likeness of the Creator. The world boiled down into the face of one person. He's not your slave, he's your brother. She is not your enemy, she is your sister. They are not Mexicans or Hondurans or Muslims or liberals or socialists or fascists or hypocrites or gay or trans or straight. They are your brothers and your sisters. This we must insist. Etched onto the tombstone of the great American poet Robert Frost is a line from one of his poems seeking to encapsulate his mission and purpose in the world on his tombstone, Frost had written, I had a lover's quarrel with the world. It makes me think amidst this quarreling world that we might have forgotten that our quarrel, the quarrel of the Christian church, 
is a lover's quarrel with the world. A lover's argument for the dignity of each human soul and insistence that all be treated with respect and compassion. We can never ever tolerate the disparagement of the image of God. We can never ever tolerate the attempt anyone might make to belittle another human being. We cannot abide someone calling someone a name other than the name they have taken for themselves. We must consider it a capital crime when a public official, any public official from any party, casts aspersions upon any person or groups of people. Of all things, this must be our greatest concern. For our Christian life begins and ends in the life of any one brother or sister. You have heard, says the loving, quarreling Jesus, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you're angry with a brother or sister, you'll be liable to judgment, and if you insult a brother or sister, you'll be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. He is no longer your slave. He's your brother. For such is life in the kingdom of God. Such is the measure of every human being. And such must always be our lover's quarrel with the world.